Hi everyone, welcome back to Invested, where we talk about wealth as being more than just money. Our partners Paul Rand, Joel Rand, and Sarah Minikari will bring in guests and industry thought leaders to chat about meaningful topics on personal finances, health and wellness, ideas for your business, tax planning, and other key issues that impact our lives and our livelihood. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you find our discussions not only practical and educational, but maybe sometimes a little thought-provoking. With that, let's get to the episode. On today's episode of Invested, we are lucky enough to have our first returning guest, David Work. David is a managing director and specializes in providing comprehensive estate and financial planning services for Hightower advisors and their clients. He serves on the advisory council to the Dallas Foundation and teaches financial literacy to graduating seniors as an adjunct faculty member at Texas Christian University. On our first episode with David, Joel and I talked about some of the basics of estate planning and addressed some of the more common questions that are asked of us during the planning process. Today, we pick up where we left off and talk about some of the more recent changes in estate planning, why it's important to review your plan in light of these changes, as well as the importance of addressing non-traditional items like digital assets. So with that, let's get to our latest discussion with David Work. Hi, and welcome back to Invested. We are very lucky to be rejoined by David Work. Uh, David is Managing Director and with the Estate and Financial Planning Group with Hightower Advisors. Thank you, David, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. <laughs> welcome so, back. Welcome back. So uh, last time you were here, we kind of went through Estate Planning 101, uh, talked about some of the basics of estate planning, why we want to do estate planning, some of the components of estate planning. So uh, rather than hash through all of that all over again, uh, anybody that's interested can certainly go back and, and listen to that, that episode. Uh, but we thought we would at least touch on some of the things that we see when clients come in and we go through their estate planning documents and walk them through it. And I, I think we mentioned this on the last episode that we recorded, but many times clients will come in and we'll say, hey, have you done your estate planning? And they'll say, oh, yeah, we just just did it. And uh, then we we actually look at the documents and they're surprised to find that it's been seven, eight, nine, ten years the last time they actually looked at it and revised yeah. it. And of course, once they find it once they find it on the bookshelf and blow the dust off of it, then they. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I, I think the attorney that we had do it is still working. Maybe he retired. And, uh, yeah. but you know, lots of things have changed. Uh, uh, children get older. Uh, people that we've um, either decided to leave things to may have passed away, or people that we thought would be a great decision at that point in time to either be in charge of our assets or be you know in charge of our children uh lots of things may have changed so there's certainly reasons for going back and and revisiting those decisions but i think we were we were talking a little bit about this earlier that also tax uh, law changes obviously and there have been some some recent changes there's been the secure act and and a couple of other very large changes that have impacted sort of standard practices that we use. So maybe you could touch on some of those and we can get into talking about some of that. Okay. Well, you know, I think a good one to get started with, Paul, goes to this concept of using what's called an AB trust or a bypass trust mm -hmm. in the estate plan. 
And, you know, for the listeners out there, maybe just as a refresher, so uh, an AB plan or a bypass trust is basically designed to do this. When the first spouse passes away, then the deceased spouse's separate property or community, you know, half of the community property will fund that bypass trust. And the purpose of doing that is so that when the, the surviving spouse passes away, those assets that are in the bypass trust can grow, not be included in the surviving spouse's estate, and then in theory, you know, escape or avoid estate tax, right? So, so that's the reason for doing it, and that's an advantage. But you mentioned, Paul, there have been changes in the law, right? And one of the ones that was actually on the table last year, if we all remember, they were going to do away with the estate exemptions, uh, and, and drop back down, you know, maybe even go as low as $3 million, $3.5 million. But where we sit today, the exemption actually ticked up a little bit because of inflation. So individuals have $12.06 million. So that means if you're a married couple, you have to exceed $24 million before you run into an estate tax. So you might say, well, okay, so how does that affect the bypass trust? Well, here's one of the disadvantages of a bypass trust. So when, when the first spouse passes away and the assets pass into that trust, then the basis of those assets gets a step up, right? When the first spouse passed away, that basis carries into the trust. But what doesn't happen is when the second spouse passes away, you there isn't a second step up in, in the basis. Right. So although the assets are out of the estate, there isn't a second step up in basis. So you have to think about it. So if you're a listener out there and you're you're projecting your estate to value to be less than in our example today under the current law, $24 million, you're really in a sense overcomplicating your estate by having the bypass trust in there. And then from a from a tax perspective, you're actually losing the ability to get the step up in basis at the second death. So you may be creating a capital gains tax situation um, unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. David, was it that portability issue in the 2017 law? Was that the yeah and and the unification right? Yeah. So so the great point, Joel. Um, and so there there is a federal portability provision that basically says this. When the first spouse passes away, the executor of the estate can make on the the estate tax return seven form seven hundred six this election. It's called the portability election, and what it does is it says whatever the deceased spouse's unused exemption is. So let's say if it happens this year and the person didn't use any of their exemption, so twelve point oh six million that gets ported to the surviving spouse when that person passes away. So in other words, he or she will get to use whatever the exemption is at the time, so 12.06. And because that election was made and it got ported, then the, the full exemption for both gets to be used. So portability is a, a great, great point to bring up, Joel, because if you think about it, that, and what else does it do? Because the because the assets remain in the surviving spouse's estate, they get the step, step up in basis the second time. Yeah, 
Um, so great, great point. Um, and that's that, a lot of the reason why there were so many AB trusts, right? Written that way was to, to maximize that exemption. That, that's a the hundred percent. Yeah, because I mean, it did not used to be that way. That's right. You, you, if you didn't use it, you, you would lose it. Right. Um, so what we're seeing uh, attorneys and practitioners do is they're building flexibility into the document. So, and here's how they do it. They put a provision in there that says that an election can be made to disclaim assets to the bypass trust, but also give the ability to make the portability election. So in other words, the, the surviving spouse isn't in a position where he or she has to fund a bypass trust. Mm-hmm. They can make a choice. And, and what I would suggest there is, um, and that's one of the things we actually do in the estate financial planning group here at Hightower is we review documents to see what's the language in these documents. And, and then we can, we can you know, highlight, look, these are some things to talk to your attorney about. Um, and certainly the attorneys love it because uh, you know what, they're, they're, they're talking with a client uh, that's, that's been educated and, and kind of understands what's going on. So, so it's, a, it's a real win for everybody. So, David, would it be safe to say that if you haven't addressed your trust situation since at the very least 2017, then more than likely something needs to be looked at or changed? Yeah, I think that's a fair time frame. You know, 2017, I mean, like literally when I think about that, that's five years ago. Yeah. That, I mean, that's actually, you know, I might even say it's been three, you know, three to five years. You probably should take a look at a minimum, but certainly when there are these triggering events in the law, I mean, what's going to happen in at the end of 2025 into 2026, what do we all know? There's a cliff under the current law on the exemption. It's, it's going to drop from whatever it is. The sun is set. That's right. It's su- Isn't that a nice way to make a... a <laughs> very rosy. Yeah. There's the sunset. How beautiful is this? Oh, wow. My exemption went from, you know, 12 or 13 million to 6 million. Oh, and there's a 40% tax. So my tax, estate tax bill just went up by $2.4 million. So mm. I, I would suggest um, probably every three year, three to five years to your point. And then, you know, if there's some triggering event, I mean, Paul, you mentioned in your introduction, um, the fiduciaries might change in the document. In other right. words, yep. who, who's the trustee? You know, maybe you named um, your best friend or, you know, a trusted advisor or, you know, somebody and maybe their their life has changed. So that that review of the fiduciary is, you know, that could be any time. Um, there's another one that I see uh, or I used to see a lot. Um, and it was this. Have you ever um, seen in trusts or you know, where it basically says, you know, at age 30, you know, the adult son will get, you know, half the yeah. third of the assets. And then at 35, they get a half. And then by age 40, they get, you know, all of the assets. Let's think about that for just a second. You know, what happens to those assets once they come out of the trust? They go into that person's name, the adult child's name, and become subject to creditors, lawsuits, divorce, you know, potentially divorce, all these things. And, and I can just tell you when I, when I sit down with clients and I say, did you intend, you know, I ask a question, did, did you intend to leave assets to your son or daughter in an unprotected manner? They just have this kind of, you know, look on their face, like, what do you mean, David? And that's what we mean because those yep. age attainment clauses, uh, those are in a lot of documents. Uh, so that's, that's another one I would just suggest, 
let's think through, let's look at the dispositive provisions and see if that lines up with, you know, what the parent or parents want to have happen with that money. Well, and I think you bring up another good point too, is say, for example, uh, I have that structured for my kids, right? I, uh, they get a third at 35 and a third at 40 and a third at 45. So that's a 10 year time horizon, right? And I've picked, oh, say I have a sibling that is going to be the executor of my, of my trust. And so many years goes by and I haven't looked at my trust and now I pass away. And now do I want that brother that's now X years old? Is, is that the right person to be distributing assets to my kids over the next decade? Right. right. Yeah. And, and I think to your part of your point that you're and making. no offense to my brother who happens to be here. <laughs> He's a great guy. Who's, 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 who's the old brother I'm talking about? No, no. <laughs> Everyone knows I'm close with the estate planning attorneys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think what you're getting at there, Paul, is an assessment just has to be made because yeah. it's certainly not a wrong choice to say my brother is going to be the trustee. You know, your brother may be you know, the absolute best choice. It's just let's assess the situation, but let's also come up with a contingency plan. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because even if your brother is the best choice, what happens if your he clearly is, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> becomes unexpectedly in- incapacitated. Yeah. Right. So what's the plan B under that scenario? So one of the things that we see clients do is it, it, it might look something like this. So in terms of the solution, so maybe the brother and or a, a professional third party, you know, corporate trustee can, can be the co-trustee together, say from age zero to 35 on your example. Yep. Then at age 35, the beneficiary, the adult son or daughter, instead of say maybe the corporate trustee gets, you know, is removed. And so then it's your brother and the beneficiary co-trustee for about a five-year period, right? So that that adult child can learn the ropes of the trust, understand what is accounting for a trust and what's a tax return for a trust? How do you invest the trust? And then after that five-year period, then a, a decision can be made. Should the adult child beneficiary become the sole trustee? But here's the difference. Keep the money in the trust over the lifetime of the child. So now the adult child is, they've had an opportunity to work on the trust as co-trustee. They understand the role and the function. When they make the decision, if they make it to become the sole trustee, now they're in the decision-making role, right? They still have to follow the terms of the trust agreement, but the money, instead of being distributed, put into their own name in their own estate, subject to tax, right, stays in the trust protected. And so that's what we're really seeing. You know, a lot of families move more in that direction um, versus just have it all pour out at age 40. David, one quick point back to that reviewing who the trustees are. I can't tell you how many times I've run across, yeah, maybe that situation where the successor trustee is either not available any longer by death or some other reason or not a friend anymore or what have you, but almost the default on a lot of old trusts I see are the local banks as successor trust companies. Yes. We've had a very difficult time if it ever reaches that level, cleaning up that mess because once the sort of local banks get a hold of them, it's really hard it to wrestle away and expensive. 
Yeah. Well, and part of the reason why is when after a person passes away, their document becomes irrevocable. So the person that's creating it can't just change the terms. So this is where it's really critical. And again, I think it's great that we're talking about, you know, clients coming in, they have documents and why should they review it? Um, I mean, that's another area where we, you know, we can review documents for clients is not only tell them, you know, that that situation exists, but talk with them about the pros and cons of the, you know, the local bank versus, and I'll give an example, what's a way to create flexibility in the document? You know, we talked just a few minutes ago about this disclaimer provision, right, to create flexibility. Well, another thing that attorneys can put in a document, there's a, there's a role called a trust protector, okay? So this is a person that can be named that can be given some, some power within the, within the trust document to do certain things. One of them is remove and appoint a corporate fiduciary. So that way, if that provision is in there, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't really matter who's been named because the trust protector will have been given the power to say, hey, local bank, you, you know, you're, you're not providing the service that the, the client wants, uh, you know, the beneficiary wants, you, you know, your investment solution set is really narrow. It's not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't open up to a broader investment solution set that we think is really important, you know, as we try to manage and navigate through these, through these times. Um, so the trust protector without cause can remove that trustee and appoint another trustee. And, it, and look, here's, here, here's the thing. Um, the person, the, you know, the parent creating the document can define what does that next trustee look like? Maybe it's a, a national trust company or a Delaware trust company, you know, can be any sort of thing, but they have the flexibility to decide that or make it broad. Just let the, let the trust protector make a broad decision. Uh, but all th- these are all examples of, let's just review the situation. Let's know what we have. And then once you know it, then, and look, it's our job to help pull that out of the documents, help, help advise the clients, then the client can make the decision, right? We're, we're agnostic as it relates to ultimately, we, we just want, we want, we want clients to be empowered to make the choice that's best for their plan. And I don't and want the flexibility, right? That's, yeah. yeah. And I don't want to stray too far from our, our, our topic, but I, but you did bring up a point, especially when we're, we're going through the strategy of how does this trust, how does this entity work? And I think we touched on this in the last episode we recorded, but I I really want to make sure we emphasize this, that, you know, most of us weren't raised to talk about money, right? And it's not very common for families to sit down and and actually go through and talk about it. But, But how important it is to bring in that next generation and we can help facilitate that and talk about, well, well, why are we designing the trust the way we are so that the kids that are the beneficiaries understand that because so often they come in and, and can blow it up without if they don't have an understanding. Of that. Yeah, Paul, I mean, that, I, I think if there's certainly one thing for clients, yeah. <laughs> the way listeners, it's really that. I mean, there's research that that's that, you know, a lot of articles and research being done on the effectiveness of estate plans. You know, because you can hire the best lawyer, have the best plan with all the best provisions, but it's that communication, that transparency from the parents to the next generation that you're talking about that, 
correlates directly to a successful outcome in the implementation of a plan. Uh, so yeah, that's a really, really critical point you just made there. But, and getting back to, you know, the original theme, sort of, hey, this is some stuff we've seen in older trusts, and now we're kind of in a, in a new age, and we've had some law changes uh, and some things we need to consider. One of the other topics we had talked about earlier was the SECURE Act and how that changed IRAs uh, and, and the implication for beneficiary, not especially non-spouse beneficiaries of, of IRAs. Um, can you touch a little bit on that and some of the things that you're seeing and the importance of that? Yeah. So, and again, maybe just a little step back. So the SECURE Act, you know, one of the things that it did was change the required beginning date, you know, from 70 and a half to 72. Uh, so that's to allow assets, you know, to continue to, to grow a little bit longer. And we but, can still contribute. Yes. <laughs> Great point. Um, but one of the key provisions was that it, it took away the stretch for non-spouse beneficiaries. Uh, and the stretch, again, just for the listeners, is the ability of a beneficiary to inherit an IRA and then have that IRA pay out over their life expectancy according to a table. Um, so, but spouses can still do the stretch. So maybe we should talk about that just yeah. briefly. So sure. spouses can still do it. If you're a minor child of the decedent, so that, that, that child is entitled to a stretch up to a certain age. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, if you have a disability, so, and actually there were some proposed regulations that just came out, Paul, that um, actually helped clarify that definition of disability for, for minors. Because under the original SECURE Act, it, basically one of the requirements was whether or not the disabled person could have gainful activity. In other words, could they have yeah. a job? Um, well, that doesn't apply, right, to if you're really young. So, so basically what they just brought in the definition to make sure that certain disabled children were not, were not um, excluded. Um, and then, you know, if you're chronically ill, that was another, you can get the stretch there. But what's interesting about the, the SECURE Act and this 10-year rule, so the, the prevailing thought up until literally just a few weeks ago was that for those non-spouse beneficiaries, they could, they could set up the inherited IRA and then it would, it, it would you know, last for 10 years, but there was no requirement to make any distribution. There wasn't an RMD requirement during the 10 years. So in other words, complete decision-making about whether or not to take money or leave it in and then take it all out at the end. And and just, I'm sorry, just to, to clarify. So for non-spousal beneficiaries, really what we're, most of the time we're talking about kids, but yes. it could be nephews or siblings or something. Yes. Like that. Yeah. Or brothers. <laughs> right. That I, I put brothers under siblings sometimes. I don't know about you, but that's <laughs> um, Yes. So yeah, great clarification there, Paul. Um, but under these proposed regulations, what they're basically saying is they're creating sort of two classes of um, beneficiaries. So if the IRA owner dies before the required beginning date, then it's the 10-year rule the way I described, which is you can set up the account, you can take it out in any fashion you want during the 10 years, and then, but it has to come out by the end of the 10th year. If the IRA owner, however, passed away after the required beginning date, then the IRA, again, it's the same 10 years, so the 10-year rule still applies, but the beneficiary does have to start taking an RMD. Um, part of the reason why that's important is you want to make that distinction is 
If you're not taking your RMD, you don't want to be subjecting assets to under distribution penalties and things of that nature. So I, I think it's just from a planning standpoint, you know, I just always encourage people to, you know, speak with their advisor, you know, give Paul or Joel or Sarah a call and let's talk through, hey, these are the, you know, this is my age, this is my spouse's age, this is our kids. And, and let's map it out just so yeah. we know. Um, and again, I, it's not an overly, well, it is kind of, it feels overly complicated, honestly. <laughs> um, but let's talk about it. Just like with all of this, let's just yeah. examine it um, and, and lean on your, your expertise in this area. And then also making sure that if that uh, deceased person was taking RMDs and there is a distribution of that IRA that goes from their IRA to an inherited IRA, whether it's uh, you know, that, that RMD for that year and the year in which they pass is taken out. Right. Yes. Because the penalty for that, if the IRS comes looking is yeah. huge. Excellent point, Paul. And yeah. one last point I wanted to make on, on the, 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 the minor child. So there was some question about what is a minor child, right? That's usually defined by state law, 18, 25, whatever the age is. For purposes of, of IRAs, the, the government has said, at least under the, the regulations, uh, 21. So that's the age of majority. So if a minor child inherits, then from 5 to 21, they have to take an RMD. And then from 22 to 31, so for that next 10 years, depending on the age of the IRA owner, they may or may not have to take an RMD, but then it would have to be distributed by the time they turn 31. Just on the side note of bringing up state laws, there's also the estate tax side of state laws, which I don't know that we've ever touched on too. And Hawaii has its own little state estate tax law with a 20% top rate, which is not small potatoes and different credits. You know, part of that review process, maybe you could touch on that a little bit, how maybe sometimes the federal part of it isn't the most concerning. It might even be the state. Yeah, well, you know, when you think about it, just to the point you made there, Joel, if, if a person is only focused on the federal estate tax exemption, 12.06 per spouse, they may mistakenly believe that they don't have an estate tax problem. So they don't they don't plan for it. And you just brought up the state of Hawaii. Um, it has a state inheritance tax. Uh, so it's just something to be, uh, number one, mindful of, know what your state's law is. Um, so that you can plan and prepare for it. Uh, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm here in the, the state of Texas. We don't have any estate or inheritance tax, um, but, you know, there are other states that do. Uh, so it's just something to, to, to take note of. And then, David, with, with that, just talking while we're on the, the conversation of minors, too. So young couple, they're working, they have their 401ks, they have their IRAs, they have minor children. Uh, they set each other up as their beneficiaries, the primary beneficiaries on their IRAs. Now we come to the contingent beneficiary. We want it to go to the kids. What are some of the options on the way we do that? Yeah, so you can actually name a trust as the beneficiary of an IRA. Now, there are certain requirements it has to meet. It has to be valid under state law. Um, you have to have identifiable beneficiaries which actually can create a little bit of confusion if the attorney is getting really complicated in who the beneficiaries are. But, but for all intents and purposes, uh, what we see, especially in the case of a, where there are minors, is have a trust 
uh, be the contingent beneficiary. So if something happens to the parents, then it, the IRA assets will flow through that trust and then be for the benefit of that minor child. So, uh, but but I, I, I do want to say this, I mean, there's some pretty complicated rules around um, what is an identifiable beneficiary uh, that, you know, for, for this podcast, uh, we can right. probably sit here for, you know, for, for three hours talking through all, you know, all remainder contingent beneficiary combinations. Again, I would just, I would just encourage folks that are listening. Um, you know what, let's make sure we understand the family tree. We understand the ages so that when we do a review, then we can, we can advise and guide appropriately. Okay. And then one other, you know, thing I, I know we're, we're running, we, we don't want to be here all day because we could be. <laughs> well, he said another three hours. Yeah, he did say another three hours, right? Okay, so we're, we're only a few minutes in. Um, but you talked about, and in that whole theme of, hey, things are a little different now. Uh, one of the topics that you brought up in our, in our earlier discussion were digital assets and some things that we need to consider maybe addressing in our trust that we didn't have to think about five or 10 years ago, uh, whether no, that's, yeah. you know, miles on credit cards or what have you. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So I think the whole digital assets universe, I mean, think about how quickly that's evolving. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the past, maybe it's, you know, we thought about digital assets as, you know, our pictures, you know, that we take on our phone, um, things of that nature, you know, maybe our social media accounts, but, you know, what we're seeing more and more of is, you know, families and individuals are investing in digital assets, things like cryptocurrencies, um, these things called non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Um, so it's, it's not just photo, you know, pictures, it's, it's even um, website URLs, you know, your web addresses. I mean, these things have value. Yeah. But from an estate planning perspective, Again, uh, you know, if, especially if your documents were drawn up, you know, five years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago, I would almost guarantee that there isn't going to be a provision in there that gives the executor of the estate the authority to work with whoever the provider is of the digital account, access to that account. You know, so yeah. you have to you have to make your estate plan, I'll say digital savvy, if you will. And, and have provisions like that in the document itself. But then there are some practical concerns, right? Where are the passwords and usernames? Like, have you made a comprehensive list of all of those, those different accounts with the usernames and passwords? And does the fiduciary, does the executor, does the trustee have access or knowledge to where those passwords are? Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a developing area. And again, you have to think about it with the privacy laws that we have today. I mean, companies, they're not going to just hand over access to digital accounts or digital assets. Right. In fact, I think it's a crime. <laughs> there, are, there are actual criminal laws that, that they would be subject to if they did that. So, um, it's just one of those things, again, when you're making that asset inventory, my residence, my retirement account, my investment portfolio, yeah. vacation house, my digital assets, and then start to list all those things. And I'll, I'll do a shameless plug for another episode of the podcast we did talking about small business issues and, and valuations. But just in that example, I can think of a case where you may have a business that has the domain name and 
oftentimes that domain name is in the, the owner of that is in the name of the owner of the business. It's not in the name of the business. And that has, that has value. And you may have made a plan for the business and your personal assets, but that domain is going off with your personal assets. Uh, another great point. And, uh, you know, you just made me think about the ways that, that individuals and people are monetizing just even their YouTube channel or their Instagram yeah. account, or, you know, I mean, these things have value. Um, or I think we talked about in our earlier discussion, you know, you have to know what you have with digital assets. You, you may think you purchased this really great collection of music, but did you actually purchase the music itself or only a license to use that music? And that's a really important distinction because look, the next generation, if they think they're going to get that great collection, uh, they may not actually be entitled to it. But yeah. again, I, I think making the making your estate plan, bring it up to speed, up to par, if you will, with where the laws are as it relates to digital assets. Um, but don't look, it's constantly evolving. So th that's probably one we got to probably stay on a little tighter as, as those laws come quickly. Great. Well, David, again, we're not near our three-hour mark, but <laughs> we've we've taken a lot of your time today, and appreciate the amount of time you've you've spent with us. Uh, so, so thanks so much. Unless there's Joel, anything to wrap up or? No, I just want to thank David for making yeah. the time. It's a really important uh, resource that we have access to, and and our clients do as well. So, really appreciate it, the time, David. You're so welcome. And I appreciate the listeners out there for uh, let, letting me be a part of your, your day today. And I and thank you, Paul and Joel and, and Sarah for letting me be on the podcast today. So I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. So that's our episode for today. Thank you for listening. If you found this topic interesting or useful, please let us know. Or if there are other topics you'd like us to address, let us know that too. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us and thanks for being invested. The RAND Group is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.